It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Daring to do is Stanley Dale. Uh, this particular message is very dear to me. The construction of the message is uh, a little on the awkward side for me as far as delivery. I don't know that I've ever delivered a message like this where I stare at my notes and I'm like, Lord, you're going to need to add something to that. But it's interesting because in this, I am going to share something that has had a big impact on us here at Ellerslie as far as the vision forming, the solidification. There's, there's multiple things that I could say in, in our um, pedigree, our root system, that I could point to different men, different women, different books that you could say, so what makes you who you are? And we're, we're all sort of mutts in that regard. Some of us are more purebred than others. I'm like classic mutt. I come from a little of all sorts of strains. And, uh, you know, so when, when people ask me what makes Ellerslie what it is, well, it's part my background. It's part Leslie's background. It's part, like, Nathan's background, Phillips and Dan and Sandy's. And it, it, there's, a, there's a bringing together of a body and we all have a similar heartbeat, but we come from different strains, different angles into this environment, which is really fun, and it's a delightful uh, thing. But what unifies us? And, you know, there, there's, a, there's a story called Reese Howell's Intercessor that is so powerful. That, that book, if you've never read it, it's, it's definitely worth a read. Uh, and he lived a very unique life. And that's what I would want to encourage you. If you ever read that book, just remember that it is not uh, prescriptive of how you're exactly supposed to live, but it is descriptive of a man who gave everything to Jesus. But he is going to build what we could call a prayer college. And it's like Ellerslie with a heavy-duty emphasis on prayer. And it had a significant impact on the formation of my thinking long before I even started what we do here. And uh, there's things like that, uh, like Brother Andrew uh, going in behind the Iron Curtain and trusting God so implicitly, but his desire was to strengthen that which remained before it died. He saw a dying, withering church behind the Iron Curtain smothered in communism, and he wanted to go in and give it heart. He wanted to breathe upon the burning embers, and he wanted to see that roaring fire return. And... Even as I remember reading that, I remember the clarity coming to my soul. It's like, that's what I'm called to. When Leslie read the same statement, she's like, that's what I'm called to. It's like, sometimes that, that gelling takes place in a way that we're not expecting it. Where if someone were to say, so why are you here on earth? You fumble a little, and you know it has something to do with Jesus and his glory, but specifically... Okay, so say we all agree we're here for Jesus and his glory. So specifically, what's your role in that? What is your unique position in heralding the glory of Jesus Christ to this world, in revealing the manifold wonder of God unto the heavenly realms? What is your position in this? What part of the body are you? And that's a little more daunting of a thing for many of us to answer. And so I've spent a good period of my life gaining understanding of what that is for me so that I rest in my role as opposed to feel insecure in the fact that I, well, I'm not as spiritual as that person. Well, that person seems to have a better calling. Oh, I, if I could just do what that person was doing, that looks so cool over there. We have this propensity as humans to look at the other side of the fence and the grass looks greener. And we look at someone else's cross that they are bearing and it looks easier to carry than the one we've been assigned. It's, it's an interesting propensity, but one of the number one things that we need to gain in our life is the ability to cherish our unique assignment and to flourish in the soil God has planted us and to bear the specific flower that God has designed us in the garden to reveal. We are a unique color. 
in his garden. If all of us were the same color, it wouldn't be as beautiful of a garden. If all of us were the exact same flower, it wouldn't be as beautiful as a garden. It's God's garden, and he knows how to bring out the different types of beauty, the different fragrances that we all are uniquely bringing. It's all the fragrance of Christ, but together we showcase Christ. Individually, we play a role working together to showcase this grandeur. We're all a part of a team, if you will. And that's why Paul is going to use the term body, because a body is interdependent. It's not dependent or independent of each other. It is interdependent. In other words, you all need to work together. And so, for instance, even though a hand, you could say, well, a hand is totally dependent upon the arm. But the arm is useless without the hand, so it's interdependent. It's not just dependent, it's interdependent. And that's us. But for us to sparkle, we all need to land our feet on what we're here for, what we're doing. If you're a hand, it's really good to know that you're a hand. If you're an arm, it's really good to know that you're an arm and how to work with the hand. Instead of being an arm and thinking you should be the hand. And so this particular message is going to touch on something that I would say if you go around the Ellerslie team and you bring up this exact chapter in the book of Peace Child, every one of us sits up straighter and we like put our finger out and we're like, that's it. Right there. Right there. That's what we're after. It's like, what is Ellerslie? Instead of just, what, Eric, what are you called to? It's like, what is Ellerslie called to? I'm a part of something that has a specific mandate. And this is going to sort of unfurl it before you. So I'm not sure. That's why I say it's somewhat of a strange message. I'm like, God, you're going to have to add some salt and pepper to this one uh, to make it really sparkle for everyone else's soul. It sparkles for mine without any salt and pepper on it. It speaks the language of my soul. I'm not sure how you're going to interact with it. But it's called Building Commandos. I actually like the title, too. And, you know, I've never thought of saying, what is the mission statement of Ellerslie? Uh, to build commandos. And yet, it's like, huh, I like that. That's not bad. And you have to know what a commando is uh, to really understand that. So daring to be a commando. So Don Richardson in his book, Lords of the Earth, is going to be describing Stanley Dale. And he says, Stanley Dale was a rawhide tough missionary commando. Now what's interesting is he was in the Australia uh, military and he was actually trained as a commando. And ironically, he went to Papua New Guinea in the military to fight the Japanese as a commando. Isn't that just interesting? However, he is going to return as a missionary. And as a missionary, he's going to be a commando. And so it's, it's actually a pretty cool story, which it's funny, the whole series is called Daring to Do as Stanley Dale, and we've hardly mentioned Stanley Dale. You notice that? Uh, when, I, when I was teaching on uh, King Alfred, if you listen through my first like four messages of King Alfred, you're like, uh, are we going to get to King Alfred? And yet, if you don't lay the foundation, you don't fully appreciate uh, that. And for some of you, it's like, uh, <clears throat> episode 12? Uh, I'm, okay, thank you, Eric, for at least the quote here, you know, where you mention him. No, I've mentioned him a few times. So what is a commando? So here's a definition of a commando from a guy named Dr. Robert Wick in the book God's Invasion. A commando is a soldier who makes daring raids behind enemy lines. You see, the enemy is going to hallmark territory. He's going to say, this is mine. And a commando is one that makes a daring raid. I mean, this really fits well with daring to do as Stanley Dale, doesn't it? I mean, just, just follow my logic here that we're willing to go into territory. The enemy says, this is my territory, you stay out. If you want to live, stay away. And a commando says, it's not that I don't want to live, I just have a commission. And he's willing to go in, in fact, with a smile on his face, and go in behind those enemy lines and make daring raids. I like that. So here, Dr. Robert Wick continues. In the finest sense of the word, the first five alliance missionaries and their Indonesian fellow workers were God's commandos. These pioneers thrust through the age-old spiritual darkness of the interior of Dutch New Guinea, bringing the light of the gospel to benighted peoples. So this is speaking of way, way back in the 1930s, uh, where you're going to see the breakthrough. The, that's what's been needed this entire time. When Stanley Dale is going to go to the Yali, he's the first... Uh, 
one outside of their zone of life, their zone of understanding that they've ever seen. They've never seen someone like Stan. The guy wears clothes. It's like, what a strange thing. His hair is straight. It, it isn't like theirs. Everything about him is, is odd. And he is willing to go into this territory and come face to face with literally what probably most missionaries in, that have ever spent time in uh, Irian Jai or Papua New Guinea would say that may have been the worst of locations ever to go. That is the most fierce of all people groups. A.B. Simpson says it this way, God is preparing his heroes, and when the opportunity comes, he can fit them into their places in a moment, and the world will, will wonder where they came from. I, I just want us to just sort of slow down over and hover over this quote a little. It's a fascinating quote that is spoken by a man Remember from the 1800s, A.B. Simpson is going to be sort of one of the key guys that's going to awaken the church to its call to the unreached. And so he, as a pastor in New York at the time, he is going to be reaching out to the orphans, and he's going to realize that the church system at the time is saying, you don't have time for that. You stay focused on your pastoral duties. And he began to realize, wait a minute, it's not just those here in New York, it's those all over the world. And we as the church have a tendency to say, hey, we need to stay focused on our pastoral duties. Instead of, isn't this the duty of Christ? Isn't this what he's commissioned us to do is reach such as these? And this is going to awaken and start a fire. Now, this isn't a fire that just started in the late 1800s. This is a fire that started 2,000 years ago when Christ resurrected and he gave a commission to his disciples. However, that fire can dim and those embers can begin to grow cold and they need to be freshly fanned and blown upon. And that's what we saw at the end of the 1800s, which is going to mushroom into this movement that we are studying in the 30s to late 60s. This is a transformative season of time where the church itself is going to awaken and say, the world, the dying world out there needs to hear Jesus. We are the ones that are supposed to do it. Let's go where they have never heard of him before. So let's read this, uh, this quote again by A. B. Simpson. God is preparing his heroes. And when the opportunity comes, he can fit them into their places in a moment. And the world will wonder where they came from. You see, this is how he builds the body of Christ. We have a place. Sometimes we don't really know where that is, but he's shaping us. Have you ever had the notion that when God is calling you somewhere, that he doesn't really move you in a straight line? It's, it can be very frustrating for us as believers because if you've ever had one of the moments where God sort of flashes his light at your future and you see something way down the way and you're like, I saw it. I feel like God is showing me something about where he's leading me in my life. And if you said, how does he show that? That's a hard thing to describe. It could be while reading a book and you're like, oh, wow, my heart just is on fire as I read that. It could be a passage of scripture where something crystallizes in your mind. It could be a sermon that you hear and you have such a deep resonance and there's almost a sense of calling with it. But it's like you graze against it. You don't really have a clear essay from God that says, in 10 years, you will do this, 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 and this. You don't get that sort of clarity. It's a hint. In a movie sense or a storytelling sense, it's called a foreshadow, where you get a hint of something in the future, but it's a hint. It's nothing more. It's not a, a clear description. And so imagine that you get the flashlight and God lifts it up and says, I want to show you something. And he shows you way down the way there. And you're like, oh, I saw it. And then he put, turns the flashlight off or immediately turns it back to your feet again, which is where it usually is. It's about an inch in front of your toes. And so you shuffle forward your inch. That's how we move most of the time in our Christian walk. We move with the inch at our feet. Now, but you have a sense that it is in this direction. I mean, after all, God showed you. So I'm supposed to go there. And the next thing you know, what is he doing? He's leading you this way. Uh, God, I, I'm supposed to go this way. And then after that, here, here's where it really gets to be a challenge, when he leads you this way. <laughs> it's like, uh, God, I, I, I'm so, so, supposed to go that way. You see, if you were to follow that route, 
it goes in a lot of different directions, but at each little zone or juncture that he is changing, that he's leading you to, you're picking up something that is very important for your role. That may be your role, and that is a very real part of your future, and God wants you to understand that he has that for you. I remember having a clear conversation with God, and when I say that, it's not, it wasn't an audible one. It was an exchange, an exchange of understanding. And I was asking God to show me what I was called to. And this is when I was probably around 21, but I was on fire. I was ready to serve him. I was ready to do whatever it took. And I, I, here's, here's my summary. I felt like God communicated to me that he can't share it with me yet. He's so excited to share it with me, but he can't. I'm thinking, what? Why not? I, I'll take good care of the information, and I'll cherish it, I'll treat it very seriously. It's like, I know. And you'll also try to make it happen in your own strength. So for right now, I know you're not ready to hear it. Will you trust me with the light at the end of your toes? And so, but over time, I feel like God has entrusted me with something. Of course, I'm walking in it. There was 17 years of prayer before we, we actually started Ellerslie. 17 years where I had a vision for this, I wrote it down. I have this described in great detail 17 years before it happened. And then 17 years of walking in directions that seemed to be the opposite of where I sensed he show, shown his flashlight. I was like, wait a minute, I, I saw that. God, I have a vision. Okay, let's do it. 17 years. That's a long time. Some of you are 17 years old. You're like, yes, it is. <laughs> and so understanding this, I'm going to read it again. This is, I rarely read a, a quote three straight times, but I just want you to personalize this. God is preparing his heroes, and when the opportunity comes, he can fit them into their places in a moment, and the world will wonder where they came from. You see, CNN is not coming up to you and me with a microphone and asking us for our take on what's going on in the world. They actually don't care. Have you ever noticed, if you, if you watch sports, uh, that in the locker room after the game, they interview the players. It's like, tell me about uh, that one catch in the end zone. Well, you know, what I was doing is I was running a, this route, and then I turned, and, you know, so-and-so defender was in front, and I pushed off him and caught the ball, you know, put my feet in, and it touched down, and it felt really good. And technically, we could say, who cares? Right? And there's some of you that are really saying it. Who cares? There's some of you like, well, it's actually sort of interesting. Keep talking, Eric. But long and short, sports means nothing in the, in the matters of eternity. Nothing. And yet we spend hours upon hours reflecting upon these things and even asking people that participate in something that really has no eternal value all the nuance and the movements of their thoughts and their body and how they felt and how the recovery from their sprained ankle is happening. No one cares about my recovery from a sprained ankle. As a pastor, I'm in the, on the front lines taking on hostile powers and I don't have someone saying, so tell me what you were thinking this morning when you woke up. So tell me, when you ran that one pattern you know, against the devil, you know, what, what were you thinking? No one cares. You see, this is the preparation of a different sort of person on planet Earth. As A.B. Simpson says, God's heroes. You see, what we are being prepared for is in the shade. We are prepared for, we are, our preparation isn't in front of the eyes of men, the cameras of men, the microphones of men. We are being groomed for something very different that the world cannot discern and comprehend, which is why when we take our role and we step into our place, it shocks the world around us. Where did this come from? Well, um, you could ask me. I just went on a massive journey to get to this place. You see, we are being built right now. It is the building of something that will change the world key for us is to walk it out and to not grow weary in that well-doing because there isn't a lot of applause. There isn't a lot of front page headline news about our life. There isn't a lot of money that comes pouring in because of the path we have chosen. And as a result, it can be very lonely. In fact, uh, Elizabeth Elliot once said, loneliness is a required course for leadership. 
if you are going to be called to be one of God's heroes, it is a lonely path. It is a path that oftentimes, instead of applause, has criticism, high levels of it. It has false accusation, high levels of it. It has the bad opinion of the world's system, where they look at you as a fool, as actually one who is creating harm instead of your entire motive, which is to help. So your good is evil spoken of. What a miserable road that would be if you weren't with God along the way. If we were just all on our own, yes, you know, that would be pretty difficult. If this really didn't matter, yes, that would be very difficult, but it does matter. Everything that is happening in your life, even that false accusation, is part of your preparation. And how you respond to it is actually part of what is being built inside of you so that when that moment comes, you will be ready for it. What role can I play in that preparation process? Is there something I can do to press God's agenda forward in this earth? So this is where we all lean in. It's like, okay, so there's preparation going on. God, what do I do? What, what, is, what is my role in this? How do I participate? Now, for many of us, we just need to recognize it's humility, it's faith, it's obedience, it's doing what we know to do. If God says pray, pray. I remember less than I having that revelation this is actually probably what I would say that one of the greatest movements forward towards Ellerslie that took place was, it's, it's caught in the book Wrestling Prayer that we wrote, but where we realized, okay, we agree with what the Bible says about prayer. We've, we believe that prayer is so important. What if we were to build our life around prayer instead of just trying to fit it in? And so for a whole season of our life, we averaged over three hours of prayer a day. And what is going to come out of it? this. And so when we agree and we walk in stride with what God is doing, things begin to happen. But what role can I play in that preparation process? So the building of a mission society. So for us here at Ellerslie, what we built when we, when we first started, if I were to start going back even in the, in the origin points of it, we had a desire to build what we call a mission society. Well, if you knew historically what a mission society is, it's one that sends missionaries. And yet, if you were to study Ellerslie up to this point, you would recognize that we really don't function as a mission society. It's in our name, but it's not really in our function. Not because we don't want it to be, but because God steered us, even as we were starting this, even though that's our passion, is to send all of our students into this lost and dying world, it's that God began to focus us and say, I want you to do what you do that I've built you for well. And then we'll talk about the mission society as we go. It was sort of like, Eric, stop getting your mind over here. Are you willing to do what I've called you to do? Which is what we're doing. In other words, what we have been focused on is like a laser beam on the preparation to be sent, not the sending. And so, and that's been Ironically, I know this might sound strange, but that's been hard for us at times because I don't like having the name Ellerslie Mission Society if I'm not going to be a mission society. If I'm going to have the, it was like Abraham, father of a multitude, and he has <clears throat> uh, no children. You know, it's like, God, if you're going to give me that title, I, I need to have a multitude of children. You can't just call me a father of a multitude and then not give me children. Well, I'm going to give you children. And that's the, sort of the same thing that I would say, is I know what he's building us for. And there's a reason why when I'm starting this series, Daring to Do with Stanley Dale, that our team, you know, our executive team leans in. This is our language. This is what is pulsating within us, and it's always been pulsating within us. This is something that God has taken all of us, instead of us being somewhere else in the world, in some jungle ourselves, God has us all here. Why? Because he has prepared a role for us. There is a role that we all play, and we need to learn to get comfortable in that role, even if it feels so much more glamorous to be somewhere else. Where are we supposed to be? What are we supposed to be doing? So when Leslie and I started this ministry, before we did, we were traveling around the world and speaking to tens of thousands of people. We were best-selling authors, 
And it was a big deal when Eric and Leslie came to town. And we had huge events. And we left that to speak to <clears throat> around 70 to 90, typically, in an Ellerslie semester. So if you were the devil, here's my thought. The devil should be happy to get us off the road. To get us, you know, so we're not speaking to tens of thousands anymore. We're just speaking to, what, 70 at a time? I mean, come on. I mean, how dangerous is that? We have never experienced such spiritual opposition as when we took a step towards this ministry. Wow, is what I could say. If I could summarize, what was it like? Oh, uh, hell broke loose. And it's hard to describe. Even the, the trauma that Leslie and I walked through in the beginnings of what we would look at as the beginnings of Ellerslie, it was so difficult for us. And there were so many times like, whoa, I, I don't want to be doing this. If this is what comes with it, wow, I, I don't know. You ever had that statement, I didn't sign up for this? Go through your head. And then God has to remind you, uh, yes, you did. This is what you signed up for, Eric. It's like, yes, I did. And so after the, the first year of Ellerslie, which was a monumental year, I mean, just extraordinary breakthroughs, amazing things happening in, in students' lives. And we had multiple micro-revivals break out on our campus. And I'm calling them micro-revivals because I hesitate to call them revivals because they didn't spread beyond here. And which is always what God desires to do, but it was sort of like, it was glimpses of what he wanted to do. There would be days where we'd be shut down and on our faces. I mean, it was incredible what we witnessed. And I remember at the end of that first year, if I could describe it, the devil had a snide remark. And I, I even felt like I understood it. It was sort of like that clapping sound, you know, like, well done, Moody, well done. You got me, you beat me. Okay, I threw the kitchen sink at you. You're still standing. However, if you take one more step forward, I will destroy you. Okay, so I don't know how you, you might process something like that, but I felt a very strong statement coming my way from hell, saying, I will give you your little Ellerslie as long as you keep it little Ellerslie. You take one more step forward, and I'll crush you. You haven't seen anything yet. You don't know the power of hell, Eric. So I sat down with my team, and I said, guys, I feel like uh, the devil has made a statement. And he's saying, we, you know, if we take another step forward, he's going he's gonna to crush us. He's going to throw everything at us. And we've already seen him throw what we thought was everything at us. And I, here was my statement, just in case you're wondering. I said, we're moving forward. We're calling his bluff. We serve the living God. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. No weapon fashioned against us shall prosper. If God be for us, who can stand against us? Now, if you were to ask our team, did we get hit after that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And yet, look, I'm still standing here. Big smile on my face. Our God is faithful. He cannot stop the freight train of the church of Jesus Christ. Our job is to not be intimidated. So as we begin to move forward in being prepared as heroes, or we could say being built as commandos, being built as the sort of Christians that are willing to do daring raids behind enemy lines, what, what does it take for a Christian to be built like that? Well, it takes the school of Christ. Are we willing to step into it and allow God to train us, even though at times it will look like we're headed in a different direction from where we're supposed to go? God, I'm supposed to go this way. Do we trust his ability to construct his saints? So this is what I've been getting at this whole time. Remember I said there's a chapter in uh, the book Peace Child by Don Richardson that is just sort of it. It says it. 
So it describes a, a place, a, a school in Canada, which actually still exists. And, you know, there, there's debate that goes back and forth of if they still have the old moxie that they had back in the 50s and the 60s, because they were quite the presence and the powerhouse for the kingdom of heaven. They still exist, and I, I don't know much about them in the present tense sense, but I'm very impressed with the way they were in the last century and what they did on planet Earth. So their motto, listen to this model, motto, training disciplined soldiers for Christ. Okay, so like we at Ellerslie read that, and we're like, oh boy, it's like salivating. It's like that's, that's exactly the way we would want to say it. So here's Don Richardson's fond remembrance, rewinding the clock back to 1955. So this is the chapter that we will read and then reread periodically as a team, and it says something to us. So I don't know if it's going to say the same thing to you. We'll find out. The angular 71-year-old Englishman gripped the pulpit in his large bony hands and scrutinized the 700 students waiting in silence. His white hair was combed straight back. His spectacles rested halfway down the bridge of his nose. From under tufted brows, his gray eyes shone with an intensity not yet dimmed by age. Something in his presence seemed to transfix the assembly seated before him in the large auditorium. Three words rumbled, deep-voiced from the old man's lips. Three words waited with his own unique blend of dignity and fervor. Netherlands, New Guinea. With those three words, Ebenezer G. Vine, secretary of the Philadelphia Council of the International Mission Society called Regions Beyond Missionary Union, RBMU, introduced his subject. The year was 1955. His audience was a student body of the Prairie Bible Institute, a sprawling campus located in the wintry plains of Alberta, Canada, adjacent to a small town named Three Hills. Behind him, L.E. Maxwell, the noted principal of this partially self-supporting Christian community and missionary training school, leaned forward in his chair. Equally white-haired, with a set jaw and determined countenance, he epitomized the rugged idealism of the school. Mr. Vine felt a strong sense of purpose as he addressed this particular student body. Other campuses on his itinerary might boast more scholarly, more polished graduates than he would find here, where the motto was plainly and unaffectedly training disciplined soldiers for Christ. But even as he sounded the call for Christian pioneers to plant the banner of the gospel among isolated and potentially hostile Stone Age tribes in interior Netherlands, New Guinea, Mr. Vine knew it was not primarily scholarship and polish that would be required, though they were by no means excluded. Unwavering faith, self-denial, and an intimate communion with God were the crucial qualities that must be present. I'm going to read that again because you're sort of in a Prairie Bible Institute right now. I'm not really very similar to Ebenezer Vine, but I want Ebenezer Vine's words to sort of make their way from 1955 into 2021. Unwavering faith, self-denial, and an intimate communion with God were the crucial qualities that must be present. And these were the main qualities which Prairie's faculty and staff, both by example and life-centered biblical instruction, strove to impart to its students. Mr. Vine knew well the story of Prairie's growth. Since its inception in a farmhouse with eight students in 1922, it had grown to be the largest Christian training institution in Canada. Because of its strong emphasis on foreign missions, already more than 1,100 of its 3,000 graduates had entered foreign missionary service, while hundreds of others were active as pastors and Christian workers in their home countries. On this basis, Mr. Vine knew that approximately 35% of the students before him would find their way to foreign fields under various mission societies. The Christless tribes of Netherlands, New Guinea, desperately needed some of them, he reasoned. As with great force and inner burden of heart, he described the land and its violent, unpredictable people. Netherlands, New Guinea, he continued, is the western half of a 1,400-mile-long island stretched along the edge of the Pacific Ocean north of Australia. It lies in the torrid zone, just south of the equator, yet within its vast watery area of 110,000 square miles, you will in some areas find yourself facing jagged mountain ranges hoary with ice at altitudes of more than 15,000 feet. 
In other areas, you may find yourself entangled in miasmal lowlands where torrential rains combine with sweltering heat to sustain an enervating humidity. You may be called upon to make the first advance into the midst of entire tribes that have never known any kind of governmental control, where people are a law unto themselves and where savagery is a way of life. You must learn to make yourself and your message understood in the mediums of language never before learned by any outsider. There will be no dictionaries, grammars, or primers to help you. You must produce your own. You will encounter customs and beliefs which will baffle you, but which must be understood if you are to succeed. You will try to beat, treat loathsome tropical diseases and run the risk of being blamed for the death of your patients if you fail. You must prepare to endure loneliness, weariness, and frustration with fortitude. Most of all, you must be prepared in the strength of the Lord to do battle with the prince of darkness, who, having held these hundreds of tribes captive these many thousands of years, is not about to give them up without a fight. The old man paused, and silence hung heavy under the great arched ceiling of the auditorium. It was seven years ago, he continued reminiscing, that Paul Gesswine, a serviceman returned from the New Guinea War Theater, approached me on this very campus and said, Mr. Vine, I have two questions for you. The first is, does the region beyond, regions beyond Missionary Union realize there are tens of thousands of tribes people isolated without the gospel in the interior of Netherlands, New Guinea? I said to him, how do you know they are there? He replied, a military aircraft was missing on a flight over the interior. I took part in the search operations. As we flew over many uncharted areas of the interior, we were amazed to find valley after valley dotted with villages surrounded by extensive garden areas. I said to him, what is your second question? He replied, will the regions beyond Missionary Union help me take the gospel to those people? Odd by all that, that all Odd by all that a positive answer to his question would entail, I first informed him we were already heavily committed to five fields, India, Nepal, Congo, Peru, and Borneo. And then caught up in the excitement of it all, I added, I'll see what I can do. Not many months later, after much prayer and deliberations, I had the pleasure of writing Paul Gesswine to say, RBMU Council has given approval. We are making application to the Netherlands government for permission to enter the interior of Netherlands, New Guinea. We soon found, however, that the Netherlands government rejected our request, arguing that their law enforcement agencies could not accept the responsibilities of protecting our missionaries from the cannibals. We kept applying again and again. Eventually, I made three trips across the Atlantic to plead our request in person at The Hague. Only recently has the necessary permission been given. Now the way is open to the interior. Missionary Aviation Fellowship of California has already put one single-engine aircraft into operation flying men and supplies for our, for our own and other missions into a major base camp called Bocadini, deep in the interior highlands. Paul Gesswine and our other volunteer, Bill Widbin, have already assisted in establishing Bocadini and are now preparing in advance over the mountains to a people called the Black Valley Donnies. Their wives, meanwhile, are helping with logistics on the north coast until they can safely join their husbands. At this point, the speaker extended his right hand toward the students and continued. So if he's extending his right hand, you need to visualize that. I cannot believe that God has brought RBMU to this great new threshold in order that two men and their wives should cross it alone. There must be others whom God will call to join them. There may be some such seated here before me now. If God has set you aside for this special task, not to build on another man's foundation, but to preach Christ where the sound of his name has not once fallen upon the ears of men, then RBMU will prayerfully consider your qualifications. How much longer must these lost, those lost tribes wait to hear of him who died for their salvation and rose again nearly 2,000 years ago? For the past 100 years, the messengers of Christ have been content to occupy only the accessible areas of the coastal fringe, now new marching orders, orders have come to the interior. Our Lord is impatient to establish his kingdom of love in those dark places, which are now the habitation of cruelty. Two men and their wives have gone ahead to establish a beachhead, and they are listening eagerly for word of reinforcements. Who will go and help them enlarge that beachhead? It was enough. God did not intend to frustrate the vision he had given to the elderly mission leader. One of the young men listening was Bill Milan. 
Less than three years later, Bill and his wife, Barbara, joined Paul and Joy Guesswine and, Mary and Bill and Mary Widbin among the Black, Dolly, Black Valley Donnies. For four years, Bill studied the Donnie language, helping to discover the secrets of its grammar and preparing language, lessons, mater, language lesson materials for others who would follow. In another part of the auditorium, David Martin, the youngest member of his class, felt the finger of God touching his own life, as did Margaret Colton, who later became David's wife. Together with Bill and Barbara Milan, they later beheld thousands of Black Valley Donnie warriors burning their fetishes and weapons of war in response to the message of the gospel. To one side, a young immigrant from Holland listened eagerly. He was John Decker, who later with his wife, Helen, led a new advance into the branch of the Black Valley called Kangami which in Donnie means the place of death. Under their ministry, the place of death abounded with new life as thousands of the inhabitants received Christ into their hearts. Also, two young single women, Judith Eccles and Winifred Frost, began to sense that their destinies were somehow related to what the speaker was saying. Within a few years, they also joined the RBMU team in the Black Valley, teaching, healing, and counseling as the Donnie church came to birth and began to grow before their eyes. Elsewhere in the auditorium, a young couple from rural Iowa listened intently, Philip and Phyllis Masters. They too soon shared in the limitless opportunities of ministry in the Black Valley, and they pressed on to open Korupan among the testy Kimyal people. Thirteen years later, Phil Masters died on the banks of the Sang River, his body pierced by a hundred arrows of the Yali tribe, while Phyllis, his widow, through the comfort of the Holy Spirit, returned to the Black Valley with her five children to continue her ministry there. There was also Richard Hale, who later, with his wife Wanda, ministered for three years in the Solomon Islands before reaching Netherlands, New Guinea, where health problems cut short their ministry after one year. As one of the 700 students listening that day, it seemed to me that God had suddenly come among us with a plan, looking for the people he would use to make that plan come to fruition. I also had the unmistakable feeling that I was one of those he was scrutinizing. With that feeling strongly upon me, I returned from the chapel service to my room in the dormitory, I could hardly wait to get alone before God in prayer and ask, is this it? Is this what you want me to do? Guided by the peace of God, I had enrolled at the Prairie Bible Institute in the fall of 1953. There, the dynamic teaching, the fellowship with other students of like purpose, and the exposure to visiting missionary speakers from almost every part of the world served to confirm still more deeply the conviction that God was calling me to serve him abroad. Still, there were so many options, so many fields pleading for workers, so many needy people waiting for a chance to hear. Thus, the question loomed ever larger. Where in this great, wide world does God want me to serve him? For three years, the answer had eluded me. At last, in 1955, as I pondered Ebenezer Vine's message, my heart had begun to pound as an inner voice seemed to say, this is it. See, I don't know if you guys enjoyed that as much as I did, or I do, because it's, I've read through that many times, because it enunciates something to me. There's multiple factors uh, in that chapter, and that's even just a piece of the chapter, by the way. That's a doozy of a chapter. But in that chapter, and one is that Ebenezer Vine could look out on those 700 students and know that 35% of them were going to end up in the foreign mission field. I mean, how many places on earth is that the case where you could preach at any church and know that 35% of them are going into active duty? That, to me, has been a prayer. Lord, that's what I want to see you cultivate here. We can't hold 700 in here but we can hold what can be hold, held. And I would love for that same factor to be realized here, that in and amongst you, there would be a readiness, a response, a desire to go back to your dorm room and say, Lord, is this it? However, there has to be clarity brought. Right now in this series, it doesn't mean that you're called to the Black Donnie it doesn't mean you're called to Death Valley in Papua New Guinea. First, for many of you, it's knowing that you're called to serve Jesus, no matter what it costs. And that's where it begins. But then it begins to become more and more clarified and crystallized because God doesn't waste readiness. But he oftentimes needs to build and prepare it and train it so that it is useful when it arrives. Because anyone that has worked in missions knows if someone comes unprepared, they actually oftentimes do more damage 
then they help. And so there is a need for both and, for all of these factors to be moving in us. And my, of course, of course, my first plea for all of you is to allow God to ready you to be prepared as a hero, to be built as a commando. God renders to each one according to his work. So this is a statement that you may be familiar with in Scripture. Psalm 62, 12, To you, O Lord, belongs mercy, for you render to each one according to his work. So this is going to be quoted in Romans 2, 6, when it's speaking of God, who says, who will render to each one according to his deeds. So what we are going to interpret this as is that our life and the actions of our life, God responds to that. And so he gives according to how we live. And that's, of course, clear, and he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. If we choose to walk his way, there is a benefit, there is a consolation, there is a grace that floods into our life. And if we choose to walk in disobedience, we also receive according to our deeds. And the grace of God is cut off, and judgment comes upon us. In other words, we have hazards if we walk the broad way, and we have blessings if we walk the narrow way. We have assurances if we walk the narrow way. We have consolation. We have his very near and dear presence with us. However, this idea that he renders to each according to his deeds, there's also an idea in Scripture that is this. God renders to each one for his work. So just as God is going to render to each one according to the work that we do in this body, he also is going to render to us to each one for our work. In other words, what are you called to? Maybe you don't know, but guess what? He is going to render to you everything you need to fulfill it. That is actually a very thought, if you would just ponder that for a second. That no matter what you are called to, he is going to render unto you, and it's a promise in Scripture. He renders unto you precisely what you need to fulfill your role. So if right now you feel very small for your role, that's okay. I think God knows that, that you're small for your role. But he's big for it, and he has everything that you will need, and he will supply it to you. There's that classic story that if you've ever heard it, you have a tendency to repeat it many times, and that's Corey Ten Boom uh, and her relationship with her father as she's getting on. I don't know if it's a train, uh, but I'm going to just say a train. And they're, they're talking and she's concerned that she will fail in persecution. She's heard these stories of these great martyrs that face trials, face challenges, and then, uh, and she's like, but God, I don't feel strong enough. I feel weak. I'm just a girl. I don't have that sort of stuff inside of me. And so she was talking with her, her papa about it. Papa, I don't want to fail. I want to stand for Jesus, but I feel so weak how can I know that I could make it through something like that? Because we have a tendency to measure ourselves based on how we feel right now for a test that we, you know, if God said, yeah, and you're going to be cut into little pieces slowly in the future, you're like, oh, I can't handle that. You see, that's your natural man talking. None of us as humans would follow Jesus in our own strength. We don't have what it takes. We would cower. We would deny. However, we have been given something According to the call upon our life, he will render to us precisely what we need. So uh, Papa Tenboom, Casper was his name, said, uh, Corey, when do I give you the ticket to get on the train? And she said, well, as we're getting on the train. She said, exactly the same with your heavenly father. That when you need the grace, when you need the power, when you need the ability, he'll supply it. And as a result, you can rest right now, knowing that what your calling is is not greater than the capacity of your God, that you will be rendered to from your God, who has all the supply that could possibly ever be needed, he will render to you according to the work that he has called you. We see this idea built out in the New Testament in many different ways, many different facets. Romans 12, Paul says, I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. 
In other words, God is dealing out measures. And he's like, okay, here's my body. I know what they need. And he is gifting that body precisely what they need to stand. 1 Corinthians 3, 5. Who then is Paul and who is Apollos but ministers through whom you believed? As the Lord gave to each one. There's that idea of to each one again. And each of these scriptures has that same statement in it, to each one. It's not just to a group that God gives, oh, here's some grace for your church. He does give grace to the body as a whole. However, he gives that grace in and through individuals so that each of us is given something to edify the group at large. And so when we learn what that is that we have received then we're able to share it with the body, which strengthens the whole. And this is, of course, the idea of the body of Christ. And so you're one of the each one. You are very specific in God's mind. You're not just part of a clump known as the church. You are actually known individually. And he has apportioned to you individually precisely what you need for your calling. Isn't that a weird thought to think that God sees you as an individual right now? Out of all the billions on planet Earth, he has a single eye on you right now. That's weird. Uh, it's a little scary uh, to know that the God of the universe sees you. He knows every thought within your head. I mean, if he knows how, how many hairs you have on your head, all right? I mean, and that's, that's pretty detailed knowledge uh, considering it's, it's, I don't even know that it helps to know that, right? How much more so does he know that which does count and that which does matter? in our life. He knows every movement of your life up to this very point. He knows what he's constructed. He is preparing a hero, and he knows your place in this drama, and he is not ill-equipped. He's not struggling to figure out how to get you from where you're at now into your place in this drama. However, you can hinder and frustrate that process in and through disobedience, in and through pushing away God's calling and saying, God, I don't, I don't want that. I want me. I want to think of self. And so when we submit, we have all we need to actually thrive in our calling. And even if you're called to Death Valley, I don't remember that, the Valley of Death, I think is what it was called, which doesn't sound that pleasant, we have to admit. Did you know that you have excitement for that call? It is a strange phenomenon how this works. Okay, Dan and Sandy right now have been stirred on by God to actually transition from Windsor to Belize. Well, typically they would be retired, right? And they would be doing well, and they could be resting in their season of ease. Instead, what are they doing in their season of ease? They're pouring out their life. And did you know that if you did a direct comparison of Windsor, Colorado to Belize, where they're, where they're moving... Uh, the, <clears throat> the, the challenges of living are going to greatly increase. So not only are they forsaking their retirement years, but they're actually choosing a harder life. Now get this, okay? I say all that to say this, and they are so excited about it. Now, uh, where does that come from? How could you get excited about that? And if I said to you, uh, we're shipping you off to Belize tomorrow, some of you might not be excited about that. Why? Because that's not your unique role. That's not your place. You don't have grace for Dan and Sandy's call. You have grace for your call. And it's, it's actually bewildering. It's, it's astounding, but it's true that wherever you are called, even if right now as you're sitting here going, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. God, don't call me there. If you are called there, <laughs> you actually want to be there. I love what I do. Now, if we rewind the clock on Eric Liddy, there were multiple things that I declared to God I didn't want to do. Okay, we want to go through the list. I didn't want to be a teacher. I didn't want to be a missionary. I didn't want to be a pastor. I didn't want to be a prophet, whatever that was. Those are the four things. If you were to say, th these are the four things I did not want. Every time I, I thought of those types of roles, I was like, oh, not me, not me. My my, my dad's side of the family, seven generations of pastors. And then my grandpa and my dad skipped. And then suddenly it's just like, thanks to them, it landed in triple on me. However, 
I love what I do. Don't feel bad for me. You know, because some of us are so afraid of God getting a hold of our life and him doing that one thing that we don't want to do. No, it's the exact opposite. You will end up doing precisely what you were built to do and you are designed for it. I am designed for what I do. Therefore, I thrive in it. Does it have challenges? Yes. Have I wanted out of it at times? Yes. But that's beside the point. I love it. In a general sense, I love and I, what I do and I thrive in it. That's what I want you to go after. I want you to recognize that you are an each one. It is specific to each one of us. 1 Corinthians 7, 17, as God distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. So God distributes to each one, not to just a pile. And, you know, it's like throws some bones over here, you know, like some steak, uh, and then it's the fastest person in the group or the strongest that muscles everyone around and carries it all away. He gives it to everyone. And he apportions it just as we need it. And we don't need to question God. He knows what he's doing. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, the manifestation of the Spirit has been given to each one. Why has it been given to each one? It says, for the profit of all. Isn't that fascinating that you have been gifted with something, you have been apportioned something from God so that others would be made stronger? Isn't that interesting that the reason he gave it to you was so that you could strengthen the whole? Therefore, if you use what God gives you just on yourself, it's a misuse. God has given you grace so that you could turn outward. One and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Most of us aren't even aware that God is distributing, that God is giving us grace. I would probably wager that some of you in here don't even realize that you have a special grace from God. And I'm going to call it special. It's unique to you. And you don't even know it. You're like toting this thing around, and you may not even recognize that you have it. And so as a result, there is a need for this to be cultivated and fanned into flame inside of you. There are different plays and roles that the body of Christ plays with laying on of hands and impartation of these things, and that is a very important conversation as well. However, it's likely that many of you in here have something that you might not even be familiar with. And so one of the things I would encourage you to do is ask God to give you understanding. Ephesians 4, 7, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. I don't know if you've seen this uh, little motto uh, from Stanley Dale before, but it's been at the end of each of my uh, 11 previous, so it fits at the end of this 12th one. Going enthusiastically, sharing courageously, serving sacrificially, suffering joyfully, dying triumphantly. And we have Stanley Dale prayers that we've been building. And Hudson was a little concerned the other day if we get up into the 20s, uh, this will be quite the process. But I want you to, even in your own soul, pray these as we're walking through this. Each one matches with each of the different messages. The first one, Lord, prepare me for the heavenly call. Lord, refine my taste buds for all heavenly delicacies. Lord, season me, toughen me, and prepare me for all difficulty. Lord, may I be preoccupied with that which preoccupies you. Lord, may I uncover that which is in the thicket for my Sawi tribe. Lord, may I be a doer and not just a hearer. Lord, show me clearly that I am never out of your sight. Lord, may I stand when others sit. Lord, fill me with the spirit of boldness. Lord, open my eyes that I may see. Lord, burden me with what burdens you. And then today's, Lord, show me my role in this grand adventure. Father, we trust your ways. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would work in our lives to prepare us for the unique place in this drama that we have. Lord, and may we trust you in your timing, in your way. And we trust that you can communicate with us and that we can know precisely what you are wanting us to do. You do not work in confusion. You work in clarity. And when we ask for wisdom, you are certain to give it. So, Lord, we move forward with confidence right now. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.